Greetings, everyone. I add my welcome to you all. My name is Greg Dernberger, and I'm one of the elders and senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 again. Several years ago, um, there was a group of young men who invited me to sit in on their small group. They'd been meeting regularly, sharpen one another and to fight the fight of faith together. And they had a question for me, a problem, really. We need your help. We, we keep on sinning. We don't want to keep on sinning, but we do. And that's discouraging. And we believe that the reason that we keep on sinning is because of the devil. It's the devil who's causing us to sin, and so we need you to help us to know how to beat the devil. And I, I know, after the fact, that my initial response was not all that satisfying to them. The devil is a serious problem, and we do have a supernatural adversary who is against our faith, he's against godliness. The devil does, in fact, relentlessly tempt and lure and assault and trouble and entrap and harass and afflict and oppose righteousness and spiritual life and the glory of God. Nevertheless, I explained to those young men that as serious a problem as the devil truly is, even if there were no devil, sinning would still be a problem. And that's because the impulse to sin starts in here and not out there. We sin because sin is part of our nature. We sin because joined to Adam, we are sinful. Does the devil take advantage of our sinful nature? <laughs> Absolutely. But sadly, even if the devil's influence were eradicated, that impulse would remain. And therefore, our greatest problem is not the devil himself, but the reality of remaining sinfulness within. So my strategy with, in serving those young men was to take them back from fruit to the root of the problem, namely the enemy within. And together we read a little book um, by... Chris Lungard entitled The Enemy Within. And what Lungard has done is to put into contemporary language and make readable the works of the 17th century Puritan, John Owen. Uh, in the 1670s, Owen wrote two lengthy and, believe me, weighty treatises, Indwelling Sin in Believers and 
the mortification of sin. People like J.I. Packer and Jerry Bridges, they've called Owen's treatises the most helpful writings on personal holiness ever written, besides the Bible. But whereas Owen is exceedingly helpful, he is also terribly difficult and ponderous to read. And so this little book by Chris Lungard paraphrases Owen in a manner and style that most anyone may understand and benefit from. So we have a few copies, I think five copies over there on the resource table for $10. I highly recommend it. The title says it all. Our most serious enemy, the most deadly enemy we have is the enemy within. And it is to this enemy the Apostle Paul draws our attention in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, which is our text for today. And in order to put those two verses and their claim in appropriate context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. And I would invite you, if you're, you're able, um, please stand. And um, this is always an expression of our our intentional attentiveness to God's Word, our regard for God's Word, our honor and desire to esteem God's Word. So please follow along as as we hear the words of the Apostle Paul when he writes, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then we come to our text. So then, brothers... And when Paul uses that term, he, it includes women as well. So, brothers, sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is God's holy and, and holiness producing word. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, right off the bat, we, we trust that it is your aim and your purpose to bring an end to sinning in the lives 
of brothers and sisters in Christ. We are no match for the enemy within or the enemy without. And so we turn to you. We look to you. We cry out to you. Lord, restrain. Restrain sin within each and every one of us. And enlarge and increase and intensify the work of your Spirit in such a way that that we become progressively, increasingly more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I entitled this sermon after a phrase coined by John Owen. He famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, the the reality of remaining sin in the life of a believer is a matter of life and death. It's kill or be killed. That is not a reality in which most of us, if any of us, have ever literally found ourselves. Perhaps there's a combat veteran in the room who has endured an actual firefight against an enemy bent on taking your life. Or perhaps there's a cancer survivor here in the room who has endured the effects of chemotherapy where it was kill those deadly cells in your body before they kill you. But for most of us, however, the, the, probably the closest we've ever come to aggressive, no-holds-barred battle for survival is at the card table or the game board playing Risk or Settlers of Catan. Beloved ones, spiritually speaking, whether we acknowledge it, feel it, are in touch with it, we are in fact at this very moment in a vicious and brutal life and death struggle against sin. And we are either killing it or being killed by it. And that's the claim, I believe, of Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Look at those two verses again. So then, brothers, sisters, we're debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, there it is, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Live according to the flesh, you die. Put to death the deeds of the body, you live. So so this is the principle, right? This is the principle that Paul is communicating. Put to death the deeds of the body. Kill sin. And since it is a present tense verb, it would be more accurate to translate it, be continually killing sin. Or to say it differently, sanctification is not an option. The process of becoming progressively more godly, 
and sinning less, it's not an elective procedure. It is our life. This past spring, I um, walked into our backyard one day. I was startled by this garter snake and uh, three little garter snakes. And um, I don't like snakes. And um, I discovered that trying to, you know, kind of get them out of the yard, off the property, it's like dealing with sin. (laughs) They're hard to herd. And... um, A few days later, those four snakes reappeared by the side door leading into our garage. And this time I was a bit more aggressive. And um, nevertheless, they escaped into this little gap between the ground and the foundation of our house. I was so frustrated and got a hose and tried to drown them out. They just disappeared. The next week, I'm mowing, and there they were again, this time on the other side of the house. And when I, I mean, I just, I just got after them with the mower. I mean, um, and as I was going after them with the mower, they slithered into the rocks where my mower would not want to go, and they disappeared into this hole. So, you know, the, the last thing I wanted was this happy little family finding its way into our garage, or worse, setting up residence in my basement. Let's imagine now that they're not garter snakes. Instead, they are rattlesnakes, or some other species of viper. And... Imagine now my basement is something like the well of souls, you know, in the old Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, this, just this writhing mass of down in the basement. You know what I'd do? I'd burn the house down. I, I kid you not. Because, you see, when you feel the danger, life or death, you put to death what you can and will kill you. That's the principle. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, who are the sin killers in Paul's letter here? Who is he addressing? And I believe that Paul is clearly addressing Christians. In verse 12, he says, so then, or therefore, Therefore, brothers, sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Verse 13. But rather, if by the Spirit you, you Christians, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin killing is what Christians do because they are in some sense debtors. Debtors, not in an economic sense. Rather, Christians are under an obligation relationally. It's it's like in a marriage. When I fell in love, 
thought I was marrying a girl with money. She's from Hawaii, you know. Um, but instead, she had college loans. And, uh, you know, when we got married, I became obligated to pay off those loans. When we're joined to Christ through faith, what is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours, and Jesus assumes our sins, and we assume his righteousness. And in this sense, we are under obligation. Our union with Christ means that his holiness His righteousness, His perfection is credited to us and therefore we're no longer under obligation to the flesh, to the deeds of the body, to sin. Verse 9 says, You, again we're talking about Christians here, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if we belong to Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in us. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we're in the Spirit. And if we're in the Spirit, that is the Spirit of life, then we're counted righteous. And as righteous, the debt of our sin has been paid in full by Christ. It is gone. We don't owe sin anything more. We're not obligated to make sin payments. And if you're getting calls and text notifications that you should just keep on sinning, that's a fraud. Don't don't answer that call or receive that text. Christ has paid that debt in full. Our only obligation is to live in the good of it. The good of being debt-free and righteous in Christ. How? How do we do that? How do we do that when, you know, sin has hacked my operating system and the, (laughs) the impulse is still there? I don't like living according to the flesh, but I still want to. So here's where it's necessary to remember that flesh and blood are of no help at all. Verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit, through the Spirit. This is the power, the power by which we put to death something against which we are no match. In what sense do believers put to death the deeds of the body by or through the Spirit? In the new covenant promise expressed in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's the spirit that causes us to want to fight sin. Beware that if there's no fight in you, 
It's by God's Spirit that we are given will and we're given motive and we're given impulse and a disposition to kill sin. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's why Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. It's to this end that we always pray for you that our God may fulfill every resolve. That's what we do. We resolve. But it's the God, it's God who causes us causes that resolve to be fulfilled for every good, for good and every work of faith by His power. So apart from God's power, apart from the Spirit's working in us, we have no power against sin, but we make resolves according to the power of God, according to the motive of the, of the Spirit, and therefore, there and then God's power fulfills those resolves and it, in fact, it is by the Spirit that, that we're even able to pray for such a thing, for God's help. Romans 8.26 says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So in the battle of killing sin, pray. Restrain sin in me. God, restrain it. Hold it back. Listen, the power by which we do violence against remaining sin is the same power that brought Jesus back from being an unidentifiable mutilated corpse on a stone-cold slab to a living, breathing, smiling, fire-starting, fish-cooking, storytelling friend. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, certainly Paul intends in verse 11 to help us to die well, but I believe he also most certainly means to engender confidence, that growth in godliness, progress in Christ-like character. The actual transformation of our character is it's possible. It can happen, at least to some degree, in this life. Not just after we die. <laughs> Verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body today, now, you will live today, now. So how do believers empowered by the Spirit kill sin? What does practical sin killing look like? And Paul doesn't even address it in this text for today. He doesn't specifically work out some plan of action as to how one puts to death the deeds of the body. But we can conclude 
that if sin killing is accomplished by the Spirit, through the Spirit, then believers will kill sin through the power that God supplies and by the methods which God approves. Now, I think just a kind of a parenthesis is important here. Doesn't it go without saying that asserting means to put anything to death, right? I mean, anything, whether it's, whether it's mosquitoes or bees or uh, mice, snakes, or big game, you know, deer, elk, or actual enemies on a battlefield. Whatever means we use, we, we, are, we are wielding something that is inherently dangerous. We could get poisoned, or we could get wounded, or we could die in the process. People can and do get hurt handling instruments capable of dealing in death. And that's why, that's why I took firearm safety when I was 11 years old. We were shown these scary movies, you know, about what happens if you don't practice muzzle awareness or you fail to engage the safety or, or you shoot at something before you aim. You know, it, it, was, it, was, you know, it was all intended to sober us up. You see these bloody people laying there. And... Um, our text, I believe, makes it clear that passivity, passivity toward an evil as, as remaining sin is in the life of the believer, that, that is suicidal. You're either killing sin or it's killing you. But being active and continually killing sin has dangers all its own. There are some who become obsessed with perfectionism. Perfectionism is a way to wound yourself or others around you. It's dangerous. We will never achieve perfection in this life. That's not an excuse for it. It's just, it's just reality. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we Christians, we deceive ourselves. It's going to happen. Some tend to shift from putting to death their own sinful deeds to making it their passion to hunt for the sinful deeds of others. <laughs> There's a temptation among a people like us in a church like ours where we take sanctification seriously. The temptation to become preoccupied with areas of correction we observe in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and there is a kind of a sin hunting that is potentially dangerous. Constant drawing attention to other people's flaws and failures. It makes for, it makes for absolutely impossible relationships where you're just always walking on eggshells. How do you live with someone who constantly is calling attention to your sins? And it's for this reason that Jesus commands us to make our preoccupation the log in our own eyes rather than the specks in our brother's and sister's eyes. 
And then right along with that danger is this, this danger implicit in today's so-called cancel culture. Cancel culture is a description of how our society calls out and punishes people for their sins in the public square of social media. When, when, when somebody is denounced loud enough and long enough on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is in the public eye, they are effectively canceled. No due process, no atonement, no forgiveness, just done away with. And then there is, of course, the potential of self-harm that comes through Morbid introspection. Endless examining of one's own inner workings and in particular one's own sins and deficiencies. And Some of us, more than others of us, tend toward that kind of thing by nature. But it is a serious pitfall and can end in self-loathing and depression. Robert Murray McShane said so famously, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. End of parenthesis. What do we do then to be killing sin before it kills us? And oh my, we could just go on and on and on here. Um, Once pastored a church where there was a, a Navy SEAL. I, this was before I'd read Tom Clancy or Vince Flynn or anybody. I, I had no idea what Navy SEALs did, but I had a, another naval officer explain to me that, that Pete, who was like one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, had this dear, sweet, gentle wife and l- wonderful teenage girls. And he said, Yeah, he's a. He told me what he does, and, and, I, and I realized, this, this, this guy is a trained professional killer. My, my friend said to me, it, kind of in jest, but to explain things more fully, he said, you know, there's probably about 25 ways that he could kill you without using anything except his hands. How encouraging. And there's probably 25 or 50 or 100 ways that we could be killing sins that we don't have time to cover today. Some are common, obvious, and you already practice them regularly. Others are less common but can be mastered over time. But let's just mention the the obvious, right? Meditation on God's Word. Sin will either keep you from God's Word or God's Word will keep you from sin. Who can discern their errors? Who can find ample early warning of spiritual threat and disaster? except through the Bible. Psalm 119, verses 9-11, so famously say, how can a young man keep his way pure? By, by guarding it according to your word. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the first habit of those who participate in our discipleship huddles is to hear God's word and obey it. Hear it. Obey it. Don't just be hearers, be doers. 
And that's because hearing and thinking and chewing and reviewing and keeping God's word is the first line of assault in doing serious violence to indwelling sin. Another means of sin killing is ongoing repentance. Turning away from any and every known sin is the way to spiritual renewal and fullness of spiritual life. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. According to Scripture, repentance is always set forth as the path to forgiveness and restoration to God's favor. And impenitence is always set forth as the road to ruin. That's why Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, for he will abundantly pardon. Loved ones, we we know it. Every believer still sins. And therefore, every believer must regularly, daily, hourly repent before the Lord, turning from sin, back to Christ in faith. Third means of sin killing is the much needed help, the real help that we gain from spiritual community. Where would we be if it were not for the care and camaraderie of our brothers and sisters in Christ? The thing that was so impressive about that group of young men that I met 15 years ago is that they really did want to stop sinning. (laughs) They really did. That's why they got together. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So crucial. We all have blind spots. Who, who would ever consider strolling a, along a law by themselves on, a, on an active battlefield? Who is it in your life asking you carefully crafted questions? Who knows your besetting sins? Who prays for you? Who knows you well enough to, to understand where you need the gospel applied? Who supports you? Who challenges you? Who has walked through the minefields of sin before you? How do we know when somebody's even taken a hit? How How do we bring one back who has been seriously wounded? None of that happens if we're alone. One of the greatest strengths, I believe, of Emmaus Road Church is our discipleship huddles. We often say those huddles are are our bread and butter. And it's because it's there, in in that context, where life on life, we fight the fight of faith side by side. John Owen gives a lot more nuance to mortifying sin in the life of a believer. According to Owen... The the best offense against sin is to keep it down before it has an opportunity to gain momentum. Listen, Listen to his words. The primary task of mortification, that is putting sin to death, is to weaken this habit of sin so that its 
power to express itself in violence, frequency, tumult, provocation, and unrest is quelled. That's why we like little books like this. Um, Lust sometimes gains strength when it meets with a temptation that best suits it or when Satan manipulates it as he does in a thousand ways. In other words, sin, besetting sin in the life of the believer, it's like a hunter who who knows his prey. He knows the, the habitat to find them in their vulnerable spot and he knows the bait that his prey loves the most and sin makes the most of that. But, but lust particularly gains strength by temptation. When the two meet, sin receives new vigor, violence, and power. Some lusts are particularly powerful. Recognizing this, one's only resort is to run. In other words, there are sinful impulses that are so strong, so overwhelming, so deadly that, that really all you can do is just run for your life. And where do we run to? We run to Christ, our only hope in life and in death. To Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes. Listen again to, to verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Stott writes, The practice of killing sin runs counter to our natural tendency to soft and lazy self-indulgence, if we are to engage in it, we shall need strong motives. One such motive is our obligation in relation to the indwelling Spirit of Christ. But perhaps an even stronger motive is the purifying effect of living by faith in the promise of God's future grace. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And listen, friends, Paul is not referring to new birth. He's not referring to salvation. He's not referring to eternity with Christ after the grave because believers already have all that. This life that is promised at the end of verse 13, you will live. It is promised to those who are making a habit of putting sin to death. That is huge. This life This life promised has to do with joy and comfort, spiritual vibrancy, soul satisfaction and confidence in the midst of trying times and steady perseverance in the midst of spiritual battle. You see, killing sin is is a painful, arduous, 
draining thing. You, you, you see films of war, and, and you see these bedraggled soldiers, shell-shocked, worn, exhausted, filthy, just, you know, like combat soldiers, putting sin to death leaves one with soul-crushing fatigue. We don't, like Stott says, we don't naturally want to do that. Seasons of shell-shock discouragement, days when it seems like all is lost, we're never going to win. Questions like, is this ever going to end? But what this stunning promise of God makes true for us, holds out to us, is that you will live today. And you will live tomorrow. And led by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, there is life, there is rich, abundant, satisfying life that, and here's the point, can only be experienced by those who are putting their misdeeds to death. No way else to experience this except by fully engaging in killing sin. Loved ones, even the pain of killing sin is worth it if it opens the door to fullness of life like we've never experienced before. So be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin and live. Let's pray. Lord, I would ask that by the Spirit, through the Spirit, you might impress upon us, stir us to the reality of the great danger, the life and death danger of an enemy within us. And I would ask that by your Spirit, you would protect us from trajectories of thought and mistakes of perspective that, that would be discouraging or self-injurious or wounding of others. Protect us from discouragement, losing heart. we would ask that you would restrain this powerful enemy within us. We pray that you would awaken us by the promise of such, such a life, such fullness of life as we 
do violence to the very thing that could take our lives. I pray that you would intensify your sanctifying work among us. Dial it up. Come Holy Spirit. This world needs people who are walking in righteousness. Our land needs people who will stand firm for righteousness. Our culture needs to see a people who are alive in the fullness of Christ. Sin diminishing, disobedience lessening, Christ-like character blossoming. And I pray that they would see it not just about us individually, but us corporately as the body of Christ today. So we look to you, Lord Jesus. We, we fix our eyes on you. You're our only hope in life and in spiritual war and in sin killing and someday in dying. We look to you. We look to you. Fill us with hope in you. In your name we pray. Amen.